Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Hello, Anna. Thanks so much for joining in on the podcast. Um, I would like to ask you first how you would like to define and introduce yourself. <laughs> Hi, thank you so much for having me here. Uh, so my name is Anna Diaz. I am an assistant professor at Texas A&M. Um, and I guess I am a, a, a really... Um, passionate about space exploration. Yeah. So I guess that would be a shortest way to describe myself. Mm-hmm. Great. So I'm curious about your childhood. Do you have any memories being interested in science or technology as a kid? Do you have any memories about that? Yeah, actually, I'm, I'm always been passionate, as I mentioned, about space. And I remember when, you know, maybe I wasn't that young, but um, when the International Space Station was launched, or I guess the first module of the International Space Station, and I was always following all this news. And and I guess one of the moments I, I really remember that sort of defined a little bit my career was that um, short mini series about how humans got to the moon. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that was called, it's a mini series called From the Earth to the Moon. And at the time I was maybe, you know, high school sort of deciding what I wanted to do. And, and that was definitely a, a turning point for me. I, I really wanted to, mm-hmm. to be part of that, that, you know, experience and, and group of people just working on, on these things. Wonderful. Yeah. So how was your journey in the field of uh, aerospace engineering? Because I think you're also working also in the designing of the spacesuit and also the psychology side or physiology side, if you can correct me. So if you can tell us about how your work looks like and how you all got in, the, in this field in particular as now your assistant professor. Yeah, I was... Um... So my, my background is traditional aerospace engineering, so not necessarily anything related to humans. And, you know, at the time, the human factors component maybe wasn't um, as upfront as, as it is today. So, so lots of math and thermodynamics and aerodynamics and, and very traditional aerospace engineering. Uh, but... But again, you know, this passion for exploration and, and space um, sort of got me there eventually. And, you know, after a few years in industry, I, I was launching rockets, working at Ariane Space, which is the European company that launches rockets. Um, the, the rockets didn't have any humans on it. It was just a um, uh, boring satellite, telecommunication satellites is what I like to call them. Um, so, so I sort of decided going back to school and, and going back to get my PhD in some of these things more related to the human component. Uh, yeah. so, I, so I went back to school and, and started to learn about human physiology and human changes in space and human psychology and, you know, these aspects that, that now I am, I am doing, um, thankfully. So, 
so yeah, it's it's a little bit a mix between aerospace engineering because the steel is is the steel space, and we use a lot of engineering tools to to design new systems, but also keep you know we try to keep in mind the human, and we do a lot of human testing, human experiments, and mm -hmm. incorporating the human component in in everything we do. Mm -hmm. That sounds very interesting, but I'm curious to ask you what is maybe the most challenging, maybe very exciting part of your research when working in a space and also considering uh, the uh, physiology or psychology as well, uh, being in a space. What's something you can share very interesting or exciting in this research? Uh, lots of exciting things, I guess. Uh, one of my, you know, my long-term goals, I guess, that, it, that it's really exciting to me is the idea of using artificial gravity in space mm -hmm. uh, because there is no hydrostatic gradients and, and you know people are floating around. Uh, there are a lot of issues happening to bones, muscle, cardiovascular, and, and others. So if we can recreate back that gravity, uh, we, we think you know most of the problems will, will be solved, at least from the physiological point of view. So, so this is part of one part of my goal and trying to understand how we can implement those things. So it is not only about, uh, so to, it, it's a big problem that incorporates engineering because obviously if you have big rotating things in space, um, it, it's a very interesting engineering problem but also physiological, like how, how fast do we need to rotate for how long? Is that going to be enough? How people are going to be reacting to these things? They are going to get dizzy. Mm -hmm. um, so, so this is a really open question that we, we don't know what's the right design. Uh, and really, it's a question that incorporates both aspects really well. So, so yeah. that's, a, that's a good problem that, that I'll be working on for, for the foreseen future, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe I'm curious to ask you, since you mentioned that, how do you see the effort from maybe the private sector like Elon Musk and Richard Branson for space tourism and designing this kind of vehicle for designing for commercial application? Do you think this is something maybe um, worthy to consider or maybe risky because there are people against that? Do you, do you thought about that, how, how this looks like for you? this effort from the private sector? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think it's fantastic. I think it's great to have the private sector involved in, in space exploration right now. That is really accelerating the pace as everyone is witnessing with all these crazy SpaceX launches and, and reusability of rockets and, and all these amazing uh, mm -hmm you know, amazing things that we are seeing. So this is great. Um, definitely, you know, the question about is, is going to be equally safe or, or you know, but I, I think uh, at least from, from SpaceX, I, I know they are working really closely with NASA um, and I want to believe everyone else, everyone else of these companies have really taking the necessary steps to, to move forward. And, and it's great that we have private money um, on this because obviously just now in these, these days, only government is not gonna be able to fund all, all these things on its own. Mm -hmm. So I think it's great. It's, it opens a lot of opportunities for, for us researchers, for people to go to space and, and for everyone. 
Um, so yeah, very, very, very exciting. Yeah. So maybe someone else could ask you about the application for robotics in general. Before going to soft robotics, and I think that's the interesting part, but what maybe the still uh, maybe active research line for robotics in the space? There's a few yeah. examples, but if you can tell us again about them. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I started to work uh, with soft robotics um, this past year in collaboration with Professor um, Robert Shepherds from Cornell University. Uh, so, so we are applying some of his um, robots and, and, and technology into the space. And mm-hmm. the idea is that you know the spaces are are highly pressurized. Um, so imagine uh, trying to bend a balloon um, filled of air, right? So it's, that's a hard task to do. And then this balloon has this tendency to come back to the neutral position. So basically, what happens in a spacesuit is that um, the astronaut is in this highly pressurized environment, like a balloon, trying to move around, bend their arms, walk in, um, and it's a really, really hard task to do. Therefore, they have low mobility, uh, they require high strength, they fatigue very quickly, and also the spacesuit causes a lot of injuries and discomforts. So... So it is not great um, to to be working in a spacesuit. Uh, so so some of the the answers that we 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 are trying to investigate is actually the use of soft robotic technology to help with human motion inside a spacesuit. Um, mm-hmm. So this is what we're trying to to investigate, and and you know we we are looking into this how how we could in, improve human performance, human metabolic costs, and, and, and these kind of things, biomechanics, and so on. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I'm curious to ask you, because I think in soft robotics, we always speak about the, the brain that we design, the control, and the body, of which is soft body, and also the environment. And one of the challenging aspects, how we can predict the environment or simulate the environment. If you can tell us more about how, how you can simulate the environment at the space, and if you can give us a concrete example, how you work in that, how you can predict maybe the most important uh, uh, features or parameters you have to get up for simulating this environment, and how this material, because I think uh, the designing of the material that can resist to these uh, conditions, how you can also figure out that is really a good solution for what you're expecting for your problem. Yeah, you, you hit a really great point. And we always have this question, especially when we want to simulate space environment um, or space working conditions, let's just put it this way. So, so definitely we are always have to find a way around it and, and there will always be limitations associated to that. So the way, there are a couple of things um, I can say about that. The first thing we need to, we need to recreate will be the the spacesuit environment or, or how hard it is to move inside the spacesuit. And in order to do that, we use something that is called the um, uh, the, the um, torque angle relationships on a spacesuit. Uh, so this is something that has been measured before. Mm. And uh, we have a database where we know what's the external torque that the spacesuit is going to induce on a person. Uh, 
mm-hmm. uh, to a specific joint angle, we know how much torque the spacesuit is providing, which means how much torque you have to overcome because you need to, to move with that extra torque on you. So, so that's a way to simulate um, you know, h- how hard is to move in a spacesuit. And we can include these relationships in, in uh, biomechanical software um, simulations. And, and in particular, we are using an open source software that is called OpenSTEM. So we are modeling the, the spacesuit, uh, but using this relationship on the joints. Uh, so this is um, extra torque that um, the, the human that we are simulating has to overcome to move that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one aspect of it. Um, the other aspect is about, uh, which I think maybe it's what you were referring to in the first place, uh, you know, temperature and, and, you know, gravity and all these, these other variables that, that are difficult to, to put in here. So um, for these are things that, that in particular Professor Shepard is, is looking into uh, is these materials in, in particular for these sub-robotic actuators that we are looking at, they are being done in, with polyutherine um, EPU40. Uh, so one of the we have been testing this technology in in a regular lab environment, uh, but you know, part of future research will be to try to change temperature and then see if, if the materials are behaving in the same the same way. And and you know, for that, we'll need to recreate the moon's temperature or Mars temperature or these these kind of things. Yeah, yeah. And did you notice any limitation so far or challenges since you expecting a certain functionality uh, in your project, for example? Do you witness any kind of limitation for soft robotics uh, actuator in, in for your like the space environment or this kind of temperature you you try and simulate? Did you notice any limitation or challenges you can share? Uh, yeah, so definitely we have a lot of um, a lot of challenges, and and this is a project that we just started. So so lots of open questions for now. Uh, the project is being funded by the was being funded by the NASA Innovative Advanced Concepts Program. So this is the NIAC program, which is a very futuristic, um, you know, out of the box ideas uh, that that we just are starting to explore. Mm-hmm. So so we are exploring three different. We we propose to include three new technologies to the spacesuit in order to improve human performance. One of them is the idea of adding a sub-robotic layer to help with human motion, which is what we have been talking about. So one of the main issues that we are seeing is really how we are gonna integrate this sub-robotic layer within the spacesuit. We have built a couple of prototypes uh, and one of the the things that we want to have, it's, it's a, enough torque to overcome the spacesuit. Um, so we want to have a lot of torque, but if we want to have a lot of torque, that actuator is going to be really, it's going to be thicker. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then if it's too thick, it's, it's going to be harder to integrate with the rest of the spacesuit. So these are trade-offs that, that we are investigating and, you know, we just, 
had a couple of prototypes, knee prototypes, and, and then provide a reasonable amount of torque, which is 10 Newton meters. And this is what we have been using for our simulations as well, biomechanical simulations. But, you know, the, going back to keeping in mind the human, like now it's not only about the tech, but also how we are going to integrate this into the human. So, so it's actually helpful and it's not something else that humans have to deal with. And, and it's bothering me because it's too thick and now I can move because of this other reason. So the, in general, the integration with the, the space suit, it's, I think it's um, a very interesting question. <laughs> Let's just put it this way. Yeah, yeah. And I'm curious if there's any specific or concrete mission, if you can tell us about, are you, are you expecting or using soft actuator in that case? If there's a concrete mission you're planning to, you mentioned a couple of examples, but if there's a concrete mission. Yeah, we, we focus these projects on Mars um, exploration missions. Definitely, this is uh, an application for planetary exploration. So we want people to be walking around. And the current spacesuits uh, that are used in the International Space Station, these spacesuits have been designed to float around. So the requirements are very, very different. They have relatively low mobility in the lower body because it's not needed. Um, and now we are talking about, okay, we want people to be walking around for more or less three hours, at least every time they go out and they're gonna be going out four times a week during 500 days. So, yeah. so definitely this becomes, uh, you know, if we can save, even if it's a little bit per hour in metabolic cost and, and you know, energy expenditure, this is gonna suppose a huge, say like, like a huge amount of calories and, and that all translates into money because it's less, less calories that we need to send to Mars, which yeah. is pretty expensive. So, so we ran, you know, based on our simulations and the kind of torque we were able to, to provide with our initial testing, uh, we think that for a Mars mission of around 500 days, assuming four extravehicular activities per week, we are going to be able, these soft robotic actuators are going to save 100,000 kilocalories in the entire mission, mm -hmm. which, which, you know, using, um, I think I, I like to do the comparison. If we use peanut butter, that I think that's 17 kilograms of peanut butter and then sending 17 kilograms to Mars, it's, it's a lot of money. I, I can't remember that number, but <laughs> but you can translate kilocalories into food and, yeah. and kilos and, and kilos to Mars. And also, we don't know how much that is really, but if, yeah. you know there are some numbers out there, and it's it's really high. So it will be great if we can save some energy thanks to this exoskeleton that we want to integrate with the spacesuit. That's wonderful. Yeah. Maybe I'm curious you for the human part, because you mentioned that, for example, we speak about human and robotic interaction. And especially in space, there's a lot of maybe consideration 
So I, I, I saw the thing about uh, maybe the, the change for human body uh, will go to space. And sometimes it could be risk for maybe this example. So if you can tell us what are the real uh, challenges for designing the, the, a suit, for example, for uh, astronaut, for example, the case, and how you imagine this interaction with these soft robots. Do you think um, there's also still limitation about how you can consider this interaction? Um, yeah, so, so there are a couple of things uh, to think about. So when humans get into microgravity environments, they experience a lot of physiological changes. Um, and those include um, muscle atrophy, bone loss, uh, cardiovascular deconditioning. They can you know, sensory motor adaptation, they can get dizzy, especially at the very beginning. So one fun fact, um, since we're talking about spacesuits, is that astronauts don't do uh, extra extravehicular activities in the first couple of days, at least, uh, mm -hmm. when they arrive to space, because, you know, vomiting in a spacesuit is, is not uh, very safe. <laughs> um, so, so they make sure they don't do that. So, and, and there are um, other things also, and, and most of them actually grow in a space a little bit because the spine gets decompressed. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and they actually grow even up to a couple of inches. So, so for the spacesuit feed, that can become a problem. That's something that it's already taken into account when in terms of sizes and, and these kind of things. So, so the spacesuit feed is one of the issues that, that is important. And today there aren't the spacesuits are not personalized. Mm -hmm. uh, they were uh, in, in during the Apollo era. But these days, it's not. There are like three sizes, um, medium, large, and extra large. Uh, so small women, for example, um, they, they, if you're you know, relatively small, even the medium size, which is the smaller one that you can get, you're going to be bouncing inside a lot. So, so getting into like personalized type of spacesuits when you can adjust to it and, and somehow, you know, get get that, that, that will improve fit, suit fit and, and therefore injuries and, and everything that, that it's a problem. Um, most of the things that are a problem today related to the suit fit. Yeah, yeah. So I'm curious to ask you, do you imagine any other implementation for soft robotics in space beyond what you mentioned? Something you imagine that could solve a problem? Yeah, I have a, um, well, what, remember I, I mentioned this project, we wanted to include three novel technologies into this spacesuit. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, one of them is the soft robotics, but we have a couple others, um, again, also in collaboration with Professor Shepard. Uh, one of them is the an outer layer on the spacesuit made of a stretchable self-healing skin. Mm -hmm. uh, so in case of a puncture, uh, which obviously could be really, really dangerous. You can, you know, the, the space is going to heal itself just by pressing a little bit. Uh, yeah. And, you know, that, that's another um, technology that could be really, really helpful. And then the third one, it's about a stretchable 
um, sensors embedded in this membrane, optoelectronic sensors. So these are going to be um, light guides that can change uh, power output uh, when they stretch, so they bend on their external presses on it. Uh, so this can be useful to you know, imagine those sensors embedded in the membrane that I mentioned before. So if the membrane is um, disintegrating or you know, being thinner in certain aspects or being stretched out, um, almost about to break, those sensors can alert you about that. And also can improve uh, a lot of the interaction with the environment. Because uh, these astronauts have gloves on them, really highly pressurized, so that the, they basically can't feel anything uh, on the other side. Um, so providing sensory information based on those sensors around your hands um, or, or any other place in the body, but I guess your hands is when you're touching things. Yeah. That can improve a lot of can improve a lot of the interaction with it. So, so these are all the things that we are trying to put into, into these projects. And we call the this novel space suit, we call it the smart suit. Uh, this is the concept that, that we're working on and trying to integrate yeah. all these kind of smart robotics um, into it. Yeah. So I'm curious to ask you about that because I think one of aspects I think very important about safety and how we can trust maybe the robot or system we design in, in such mission and whether you have to trust the human or the machine, for example. And I think one of the examples I think is very strong about that. I think the, the, uh, the incident of Airbus 7744, if I'm not mistaken, the number, it was from Reggio to Paris, and and it it was air front, I think, uh, aircraft, and it, it just that the crash happened because of the the misinformation about the sensor was frozen. I think that what happened and giving uh, misinformation to the pilot. I don't know if you uh, can explain about this incident and how you can imagine in designing the safety aspect safety and make sure that you simulate the interesting parameter from the soft robot in the environment and make sure the safety uh, accuracy uh, maybe 100% in, in such mission like that. Yeah, I unfortunately remember very well that flight that you mentioned. And at the time I was flying a lot with Air France because I was in French Guiana um, with yeah. Ariana Space. So, so the the way to come back to Europe was through Air France, through Paris. So, so it was something that really, really struck me. Um, mm -hmm. And actually, during my my time when I went back to to school, as I mentioned, to get my PhD in my human factors class, we actually talked a lot about this flight. And certainly, it was an automation. Don't want to say automation problem. It, it was automated aspects that maybe the crew didn't understood very well or you know with a lot of human factors issues that of course a lot a lot of things have to come together to to get to the into this this sort of accidents but and unfortunately it did so yeah that that's a great question um uh i mean it's a classical question about humans versus robots so so I guess the, the, the answer that I'd like to give is, is, well, we need to find a way for both to work together. Humans are really good at certain things. 
more than automation and automation or robots are really good at other things and humans are less good at. So we just need to allocate those aspects to the right you know, agents, either the human or the robot to do. Um, so, so I guess a good, good understanding of, of what that is. And in the case of the spacesuit, I, I don't think we're envisioning as much the robots just working on their own. It's just really assisting the human and the human can override things um, when they, they want. But, you know, I think it's a little bit early in the projects. We, we haven't tackled those questions yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're really at the, the stage of, is, is that actually working? Is this a good idea? Can we, you know, the whole thing makes sense. So, so yeah, but they, you bring great, great questions that we need to, we need to make sure we have a good answer. <laughs> yeah, but I'm curious to ask you again, uh, do you think when you simulate, because I think this issue having in the public community about how we can have, have high fidelity simulation so that what we simulate is really, really capturing what's happening in reality. And do you think in space exploration, it, how, how much is this, it could, I mean, uh, the accuracy of the simulation, do you have high fidelity simulation? And when you consult soft robotics, what could be the striking or maybe the significant parameter to, oh, that's what I'm looking for from, from this actuator. And that would be crucial in simulation and give me this answer I'm looking for. Yeah. Um, so in the space environment, at least the, the kind of investigations that I, that I do and I'm part of, uh, we use space analogs here on Earth. Uh, so depending on the question, there will be an analog that is better than others. So um, to give you an example, if we are interested in changes in the cardiovascular system, we can put someone on a bed rest tilted minus six degrees and we recreate really well fluid shifts. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's sort of an accepted analog that represents pretty well what it is, what we want to you know, simulate. But then this, the same analog, it's actually not a good analog if we are more interested in sensory motor changes or changes in tilt perception because those elements actually not don't get degraded in, in that specific position. Mm-hmm. So, so finding the good analog that works for your research question, it's, it's definitely very important. Uh, in terms of robotics, to go back to, to your question, I, I think some of the, the important questions will be, or I guess the easier questions to answer will be, well, is that going to work at this temperature? And, and somehow we should be able to create that temperature and test it. Uh, the gravity aspect is, is a little bit harder to do. Um, but, but, you know, there are certain ways we can simulate, you know, there are parabolic flights. So we could, it's just for 20 seconds, but we could potentially have real microgravity for, for 20 seconds. Um, in case we want to test it there and make sure we get similar behavior than in 1G. Um, And then certainly the testing with humans, like human in the loop testing, it's it's really, really important. So far, the work that we we are doing, we have tested those prototypes on a a bench. Uh, So we haven't integrated with a human yet. 
So, so that's something that we are looking forward to. And, you know, maybe on a bench, things were great, but once you put things on a human, you know, testing with humans, it's always complicated and brings more questions sometimes, uh, or, you know, definitely things that we don't think about before just come up during the human testing. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, wonderful. Yeah, maybe a quick question. Maybe some people are curious about that. Since you work in space, do you think there's really aliens? Uh, <laughs> I'm curious about that. Yeah. Yeah, that it's funny. Yesterday, I actually saw an article. Um, I can't remember the what journal it was. It was either Nature or Science, one of, of those big ones, of a team at Oxford saying that intelligent life is actually extremely unlikely uh, yeah. because a lot of crazy things have to happen and, and we are actually in the place where all of this happens but you know I think they did a um, Bayesian analysis like statistical analysis on probabilities and, and things so I was just actually reading that it's like oh that's sad like you know I, I wish there were someone out there I, I hope there will be someone out there um, yeah, I, I don't have a good answer, I guess, for this. Do you, believe, do you believe in that? On the, because I, some people said it's hoax. We don't care about that. And some people are really curious. Do you think this is really something interesting, or it's real, or as you as your personal beliefs about that? Is this I, I, I hope there is someone, or there has been someone out there before. Um, you know, but even if, if it wasn't the case, I I think we humans are explorers by nature and and I will still think we need to go out there and then go to Mars and, and explore and exploring. But but yeah I I don't know I don't think like the green alien exists but but some form of life I I hope you know given how, how vast the universe is um so this is what I used to think until yesterday when I read that that article. So now I'm not sure what to think. But yeah. 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 <laughs> so maybe I'm curious to ask you what other challenges you face in your work in general, challenges in your research and what your aspiration you look into mm. in your research. Yeah, so one of the, the challenges that, that that I face every day, and I guess my students face every day. And I, I wouldn't say it's a challenge. I think it's more an opportunity. But it, it's going back to this idea that we we attack the problems using both engineering skills, but also you know human aspects and, and human physiology and human factors. So so you need to integrate both things, know a little bit of everything. And traditionally, the students are either or, um, you know, traditional airspace person that, um, you know, haven't been exposed to, hasn't been exposed to these other aspects or kinesiology, human performance students who, you know, don't know much about aerospace engineering. So, so I think that's a challenge, but also it's the fun part of it to, 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 you know, to work with. Um, human experiments, I would also say, are interesting. You know, when you're testing an object, a robot, it, it's always going to behave the same way. Um, if you test even the same person twice, you can find a lot of differences in between because that person might be 
upset one day or you know, there's so many variables to deal with when we test human subjects. So humans are sort of the worst subject, you know, the worst object you can test because they are really variable and they have feelings and they learn. So if you ask them to do a task, maybe they will do better the second time just because they have learned how to do it. And even if they try not to, um, so even trying to help, that's also a bad thing. So, so testing humans, it's, it's, in, it's interesting and it, it's part of the things that I really like to do, but also it's very challenging to, mm-hmm. to do as opposed to, you know, test a, a robot, maybe that you're, you're testing, you, you can do 100 times on off and I'm sure it's going to do, or it should do pretty much the same. Right. So, so that's a very challenging aspect, I guess, but also, also fun. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting indeed. Yeah, so maybe uh, the, we have a few questions left before ending this episode. First one about um, uh, how we can be intellectually inclusive for different ideas. I don't know how it works in the aerospace sector for maybe research in academia, but if you have different ideas, do you think that uh, they are the community of aerospace engineering are really maybe intellectually inclusive? Because I think in academia, we have few funding and that's something we discuss with time. And there's a huge competition about who got the funding for these ideas. So I don't know how, how do you see the intellectual inclusiveness in, in your field? Yeah, my, I guess I can just talk from my personal experience. Uh, but I, I guess I was lucky and, and you know, it's true. There is this, you know, everyone is, is looking for the funding and of course, there is a healthy competition, but my experience has always been really good. Um, when I was a grad student or with my mentors and some of my colleagues now, my, my colleagues in grad school, they are now professors and we know we are competing for the same things, but at the same time, we are rooting for each other and, mm-hmm. and we keep asking us questions, hey, I'm doing this, or what do you think about these statistics? Or, you know, there is this friend of mine that I really like to talk statistics. Um, so my statistics questions, we always talk about them. And uh, so I, I personally didn't have a bad experience or, you know, not inclusiveness, as you mentioned, someone who's like, oh, what you're talking about? I think, um, the more I've been in academia, the more you sort of um, are open to to other things. I think it's like, oh, that I might be wrong. This might be a good idea instead of just saying, oh no, that's crazy. Um, I think I always think or try to always think twice before judging an idea or or something. It's like, oh, maybe there is something I'm missing, um, and I think that's something that I've learned through the years. Uh, it seems that the more we know, the the more we really, the less we really know. We realize we know very little. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, so you sort of guess yourself more um, with time, I think, or at least it's my experience. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, from my experience, I I didn't see any any bad situation and related to to that, thankfully. Good, yeah, yeah. I, I hope it will be like that uh, in in the, in the field and or maybe in academia in general. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So maybe I, I would like to ask you how 
you and with your team ensure that what you develop from technology is beneficial to humanity? Um, so I think this question is important because sometimes in the podcast we ask whether we have to do research from just technology as technology we develop or maybe brochure based or something meaningful or maybe tangible to the people. So how, how you see this kind of approaches for the project you do and do you consider that how, how this could be in the long term could be really effective? Because I don't know, sometimes most of research, not all of them, of course, but sometimes um, we don't know what could be application out of it, sometimes. I don't know if you could encounter something like that and how you answer this question while you do your research. Absolutely. I, I think, and, you know, the, the, we are always trying to look for, um, you know, applications for here on Earth. And in, in this case, you know, the soft robotic, um, soft robotic layer that, that we are investigating in the space zone, um, it, it has a lot of applications for rehab, rehabilitation projects or, you know, it, it's at the end of the day, it's like an exoskeleton or the traditional exoskeleton, but instead of being hard exoskeleton, it's soft exoskeleton. So all the healthcare rehabilitation, uh, improving motion, in, in, you know, some people who might have issues with walking in any aspects. So, so these are things that are definitely, definitely applicable uh, to that. And, you know, more broadly, the the lab or our lab it, it's called human performance uh, so so definitely you know we, we like the application in space in extreme environments but um but you know it, almost everything can be applied to to certain situations here on earth um so so yeah that, that's a really important important aspect of it yeah, yeah. And do you think ego is important for the researcher? No, I mean, if the ego is important for me, yes. uh, and I, I want to think it's not. Uh, <laughs> uh, just want to do good, good work and, and, you know, mentor students. This is why we're in academia and, you know, trying to develop interesting concepts and, and of course, the funding has to come along too, because otherwise we, we don't survive. Um, but, but, you know, as long as we, we have a healthy lab with, with people happy and good relationship uh, and a good working environment, um, that's, that's all I can ask for. I'm curious to ask you what may be the most important quality you have gained while working in academia. I think you have been working in academia and industry. So based on what you mentioned and also in different demographic regions. So I think that's really inspiring for many women to travel around and be in different domains. So maybe I'm curious what maybe something you have gained from this expertise you have been working, uh, as I said, in different location and different domain. Yeah, absolutely. So for, for quality, I think something really important is perseverance. And it's something that I, I think has defined my life. Like every time I've moved around, it's not something that I just submitted one application and then I got it. Like I got so many rejections and, and you know, application and I kept applying, I kept, you know, doing some of those. 
you know, exams you need to do to at the time to get to grad school or the TOEFL or the GRE. Um, I do both of them multiple times because I didn't get what I wanted and applied for fellowships all, all, for multiple years until I finally got something. So, so if you really want something, just keep fighting for it and, you know, hopefully eventually we'll, we'll, will come along and if it doesn't it's it's maybe because something else come along in, in between and you actually decide to to do something different mm-hmm. so so yeah I guess, I guess that that's something that I I feel proud of um especially in academia when you know you you live with all these you know grand rejections and paper rejections and you have all these rejections all the time and and you know it could be harsh and um, you just have to keep keep going and, and moving forward. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, I, I really admire what you did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what was the best advice was given to you was a person professionally and was a life changing? Uh, I think something on those lines and then be be true to yourself. Like there is so so much you can you can fake something <laughs> and it's yeah. just gonna come up anyway. So uh, so, so yeah, and then you're not gonna do well if, if you have to to do something that you don't agree with or or you don't feel comfortable doing. So, so just go for what you want to do and, and be yourself. And I, I think I try to, you know, going back to perseverance, I, I try to follow that and and keep keep pursuing my dreams. I guess that's a little bit cheesy, but uh, but yeah, it, it's a little bit what it is. <laughs> Yeah. Do you have any final words you would like to say? Uh, no, I mean, thank you so much for having me here. And, you know, I'm sort of an, an, an outsider of these fields. I was really glad that uh, you contacted me for this. And hopefully the audience will enjoy having a, a different perspective of, of the uses of, of some Thanks. robotics. Thanks so much. I think it was very enjoyable and fun as well to learn about space robotics as well and top robotics application. So thank you for your time. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you.